Hey everybody, you are tuned to Deep Dive, the All Music Books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Alan Paul, who wrote the book Texas Flood, the inside story of Stevie Ray Vaughan. Welcome, Alan. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, first of all, congratulations on the book. It's a fantastic read and will likely be the definitive Stevie Ray Vaughan story. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the kind words and appreciate all the stuff you guys have done. It's funny. You also wrote One Way Out, The Inside History of the Almond Brothers, which I read quite a while ago, and maybe we'll have you on again for that. But you are also a guitar player yourself, correct? Yes, I am. Am I sensing a theme here? <laughs> a little bit. You know, I, to be honest, I think of myself more as a guy who plays guitar. Uh, my co-author on Texas Flood, Andy Allidort, is a guitarist, and he's a, he's a fantastic guitar player. I'm a guy who plays guitar. How about an author and a guy who plays guitar? That's right. Absolutely. Yeah, author first. Andy and I both came out of Guitar World magazine. I started working at Guitar World in 1991, so I spent a lot of years <laughs> writing about guitars and really guitar players, more to the point. We always made an effort for our interviews in the magazine to be what we considered at the time, we used to say Rolling Stone caliber. You know, we wanted them to be open to anyone and to be as insightful and interesting as to anyone, whether you play guitar or not. But we, you know, it's primarily, it's a, it was obviously a guitarist audience. We're all players and it, you know, changes the way you talk to people and it changes the way that they talk to us, I think. Indeed. And, and that's actually an excellent setup for your book, because as much as, you know, Stevie Ray appeals to guitar players, you know, I think he's one of those musicians that is transcendent upon styles. And his story is a beautiful one and a tragic one. And your book beautifully illustrates that. So let's jump into that. One of the sometimes pitfalls of music bios, and I read a ton of them, is the quote-unquote early years, which focuses on the childhood and all that. And some people, they want to jump ahead in the story. But in Stevie Ray's case, his youth was such a formative part of his path. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate you bringing that up because that that's something that was really important to me. Um, as you can imagine, I also read a lot of uh, musicians' biographies. And I often jumped past <laughs> childhood parts because you know, I want to get to where Stevie Ray became Stevie Ray. We had the opportunity here, and the, the very heart of what I'm about to talk about is really this one interview that Andy did with Stevie and Jimmy together when their album Family Style was coming out. And we believe it's the only interview that the two of them did together in support of that. And they talked extensively about their childhood uh, or, or earliest influences. And so you have that feeling as you're reading that of a back and forth between Stevie and Jimmy talking about their you know, their influences and what made them passionate about music. And I was so excited when I read that whole thing because it gave us a way to leap into that and then grow from there. And, and, and of course, also the fact that we had access to uh, the family, all these cousins who spoke to us and stuff was wonderful. That one interview was really the basis of being able to dig into that. And, and I think it did raise the point exactly what you said, that from the earliest that anyone can remember, <laughs> these guys were obsessed with you know, guitars and with music. It was such a part of their life and existence. Um, there's nothing superfluous. Like from the time they could breathe, basically, uh, there they were talking about music and guitars and, and musicians. So it, it, it was kind of cool. I mean, I, I was really pleased with that myself. So, 
Well, you mentioned in the book his dad was friends with Bob Wills, and members of the Texas Playboys would come to the house for dominoes and card games. And these are, what, eight-year-old kids or something? Right. Now, I'm not sure if they actually if he was actually friends with uh, Bob Wills, but definitely with members of the band. And those guys were a big, big deal, especially in Texas. Definitely. They were exposed to these guys from the very, very earliest days of their life. And I think... There's no way that it couldn't have had a giant impact. I mean, if you just think about it, how you know how could it not? You know, um, it seems that early on, both boys kind of understood that maybe music was their way, their only way out of Oak Cliffs, Texas, which was a bit depressed. I think that when they were younger, they weren't thinking about getting out of Oak Cliff per se. <laughs> I think as they got older and they did get out of Oak Cliff and they looked back and saw how many of their peers didn't and ended up stuck there, uh, sometimes incarcerated, sometimes just dead. That really weighed in. But I think in those earliest days, they weren't thinking about, we got to get out of here. They were just thinking, we love this. We're obsessed with this. There's nothing Mm. else we want to do. This is the whole world. You know, it's like the universe in a Jimi Hendrix lick or a Muddy Waters guitar lick. And part of the thing about it that's interesting and sort of curious and that Jimmy says very directly is our family members were into country. They were just drawn to the blues. They were from the very, very start. And it's one of those things you can't really explain it. You know, it's like, asking someone why they like or don't like spicy food or something. Right, right. And it was also, you know, kind of, I mean, like Albert King and like, it wasn't, you know, the, the real commercial blues players. It was the roots of that stuff. Right. Right. Well, and, and as Jimmy says somewhere in the book, there's no better place to grow up and be into this stuff than Texas. Right. <laughs> so I think that it was in the air, even in their world, which might seem to have been a step removed from that more than than you would think or could imagine. Mm. Well, Jimmy was a massive influence on Stevie, obviously. He was the older brother, a guitar player beforehand. And he notes that Stevie was just constantly playing and learning. Jimmy wasn't just a great guitar player. He was a big, big deal. When he was 14, he was playing in a band called The Chessmen. Everyone else in the band was in their 20s. They were one of the most popular bands in Dallas. Um, they toured all around. He was making more money, I think 300 or $350 a week, more money than their father. Right, at 14. Yeah, which obviously caused some family tensions and eventually led to him dropping out of school uh, after ninth grade and moving out on his own. You can imagine that that created some interesting family dynamics. <laughs> and mm-hmm. mom and dad, who had always been very supportive of him and of the music, and they were really quite enthusiastic about it, that changed a little bit for Stevie once. Uh, Jimmy was out the door and you know it was sort of like oh you know this this might lead to him dropping out of school and <laughs> going out and doing we don't know what alone right. without the protection of, of big brother or the screen of another sibling in the house one of the funny stories and anybody who's really into music and even you know guitars and things like that would recognize it but Stevie learned a lot by listening to records which he would procure from friends by hook or by crook wouldn't he Right, and and that became famous all the way through. You know, we we have a really cool picture in the book. One of the things I was really pretty proud of of the actual forty five of Texas Flood that he learned the song from. He had borrowed uh, from Denny Freeman, who's a friend and great guitar player, who was a great source for us in the book. And he still has the forty five, which has a chip oh, wow. out of it. Wow. So, which is pretty neat. But we told that story to Diana Ray 
who's the wife of the late Paul Ray, who was a really influential person in, in, in their lives as well and was the leader of Paul Ray and the Cobras, which was Stevie's, one of his first big breaks. And she laughed and said, well, at least he gave the, the record back to, to Denny. <laughs> you know, Paul complained all the time about lending records to Stevie and then not getting them back. Hey, it happens. I know yeah. everyone knows. Yeah, and everybody, even from the beginning, from high school right on through those days in Austin, people recognized in Stevie that he was doing stuff like that because he loved the music so much. He was so hungry for it. Nobody could ever really stay mad. They were always also sort of happy to lend him a record on, on one level because they knew, you know, what he was doing with it, that he was throwing himself into it and completely embracing it, and they loved that about him. You know, a little bit contrary to Jimmy, but as Stevie grew as a player, he started, you know, developing his own style and also, you know, breaking out of a strictly blues playing, and that included, like, his style and his dress and, and really everything, no? Yeah, I mean, and there's some interesting comparisons. It's really a Tommy Shannon, who was, you know, of course, the, the bass player in Double Trouble. And, and ultimately, Stevie's probably, you know, very best, closest, deepest friend, makes a comparison where he's, you know, talks about how much they influence one another. That once he started taking a original way to how he dressed, uh, it impacted his music. And he started, you know, it was all one and the same. It was all a matter of him being himself. And earlier, after he had moved to Austin, you know, he was dressing more in the style of what was popular among blues bands then, which was really um, pioneered by Jimmy, which was a sort of right. vintage cool, you know, vintage suits, um, you know, sort of fake alligator skin shoes. And somewhere along the way, you know, Stevie started going for more of an almost punked up look where he was wearing sort of cut off shirts. And that developed until he, you know, let his Jimi Hendrix thing go. And, right, right. You know, and, and he dressed crazy i mean you look at some of the the things just the, the picture of him on the cover of our of, of the book where he's but he's wearing his famous black hat with a giant ostrich feather hanging off the back and you know that feather's crazy but it worked for him you know, it, he, it did it did he his wore kimonos he wore you know he wore a lot of crazy stuff he he wore that giant indian headdress uh which jimmy had given him for his birthday you know who else would take a, a full-on you know warrior <laughs> headdress and put it on and wear it on stage but it you know it all worked that thing was huge because you have pictures <laughs> pictures of that in your book and that thing is huge well, there's, there's a lot of crossover with Jimmy and his band, The Fabulous Thunderbirds. I think Luann Barton was an early foil, and she played with Jimmy, correct? Right. So Luann was originally from Fort Worth, and she was down in Austin visiting some friends. And apparently uh, the, the Thunderbirds were really a new band then, and she sang with them. And Jimmy was so taken by her that he said, uh, you're going to be in my new band. And she said, uh, well, I don't, I don't live in Austin. And he said, that's okay. I got a place for you to live. And he drove her over to uh, a house where Denny and Stevie and a bunch of other guys were living and said, you can live here. Oh, my. You know, she was a willing participant, of, of course, but she, you know, was taken by his guitar playing as he was taken by her singing. So uh, she did join the T-Birds, but I believe she was only in the band for about six months. During that time, Stevie was in the Cobras, uh, which was the band where he really found his footing and started to have a following. But he also was starting to become a little bit well, frustrated, you could say, with being a sideman and being more ready to go out on his own. But not being 100% ready to go out on his own, going out with Luann 
was, was sort of a good intermediary step. And the band they formed was called Triple Threat Review. It also had the great bass player, uh, W.C. Clark, who also right. was a singer. So all three of them sang. And the keyboard player uh, also was a great singer, a guy named Mike Kindred, probably best known all these years later because he wrote uh, Cold Shot. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, the, eventually, of course, uh, Stevie recorded on his own on his uh, second album, became one of his, I would say, still um, you know, best known and best loved songs. Maybe my favorite, but we'll get there. Do you think, like, Stevie was, you know, reticent to sing at the beginning until he wasn't, right? But right. did you think that Luann helped him find that singing voice? Well, she says she did. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think she did. I think she was. She is a great singer. She certainly uh, was at, the, at that time a very forceful singer. And it's not just being a great singer. It's also being a front person. Because I think even as Stevie's vocals began to be stronger, he still was a bit hesitant as a front person. And she pushed him to, you know, really sort of go for it, let the inhibitions go a little bit, to the point that he, he got to where basically didn't need her anymore um they were starting to clash uh, it, it coincided with him wanting to go more into the include some of the Jimi hendrix and, and and rock explorations and she wanted to be more of a straight blues person i, I think the real bottom line is he was ready to be a front person um, right. um she really was an important figure not just in the singing she did with them but but in working with chris and working with stevie and helping them become um, you know, the, the blues force that they became. And you mentioned that some of them weren't so together. And it's you know, <laughs> rough, roughly at this point where Stevie does kind of get his shit together. And, you know, from a management and booking perspective, he hires Sam Cutler, who had worked with the dead. And, you know, perhaps more importantly, a guy named Chesley Milliken, who knew the Stones, and he, he definitely provided some help and structure. Oh, absolutely. Without those guys, I mean, Stevie might, you know, have never left playing clubs in, in Austin, um, which obviously wasn't a reflection of his talent in any way, but just of the sort of basic realities. Sam was never involved day in day-to-day -day management of them, but he was uh, the person who brought Chesley into the mix. I think without his involvement, there's no way they would have gotten as far as they got. Well, there were a lot of bands, a lot of gigs, a lot of experimentation, but it seems, you know, once Stevie decided he wants a trio, right? And, and that's really where they kind of came into their own. That's right. So the original bass player was Jackie Newhouse, who was another guy from Fort Worth who, who Luann had brought down. So after Luann had left, they became a trio with, with Jackie and Chris and Stevie. And pretty quickly... Tommy came into the picture. Now, they had known Tommy previously. Now, Tommy's own story is quite fascinating. Uh, just a, f a few pages in Texas Flood where, where we went in-depth on Tommy's story, I thought were almost as powerful as any pages in the book. To put it in perspective, Tommy had played with Johnny Winter. He played Woodstock with Johnny Winter. Um, and 50 years to the day after he played Woodstock, uh, he was with Andy and I at our uh, at the book release event in Austin, which was quite very incredible. Cool. <laughs> he was a big deal. Great bass player. He had fallen on very hard times. Tommy got really embroiled in drug addiction. He was in and out of jail. He ended up in a halfway house, banned by a judge from playing music because he didn't want him in bars that served alcohol. Um, and he went several years without playing at all. And his story is heartbreaking. And he finally went to see Stevie in Houston and got up and played with him. 
and he had a powerful feeling that this is where I belong in my life, and I'm going to do anything I can to get this. Once Tommy came into the picture is when everything clicked. And playing in a trio is a very particular thing. It can be a, a really great and really powerful thing. You know, you can't just have a bass player playing a root note or a drummer playing right. just the beat. And Stevie was such a great full guitar player that he did carry a lot of that. But those guys just knew exactly how to fall into place behind him, how to push him forward, how to get the best out of him. And, and once that trio became the trio, <laughs> became the band, is when things really locked into place. And I think they all knew what they wanted to do and how they wanted to sound. And then it was just a matter of sort of getting there and developing it. And and, and that's where having the manager uh, in Chesley who had these connections, you know, really eventually came into play and pushed them forward and onto the next level. And Stevie recognized pretty early on that Tommy Shannon was the guy for the band. Yes, he, he knew it pretty much immediately once he started playing. He was a little bit hesitant initially to put him into the band be, <laughs> because uh, Tommy had had such drug problems. Now, he was over his drug problems, at least for the time being, while Stevie was very much in the middle of it. Right. Chris and Cutter Brandenburg, who was their road manager, he had spent some time on the road and had an understanding, at least a little bit, of what the difference was between sort of playing bar gigs and putting on shows. And he had a little bit of a sense of that. But uh, Cutter also was the person who immediately, when he heard Tommy sit in, said, this is it. This is who you need. He needs to be in your band. And Chris was right with them. And so they had to talk Stevie into it because Stevie would say, well, I don't know, you know, he's he's got so many drug problems. And, uh, you know, Chris tells the story that he said, Stevie, you got, you know, you got a, a hypodermic needle in your sock right now. <laughs> they obviously pre prevailed. Tommy joined and it, and it was, in fact, the missing piece. And that's when everything kind of came into focus. We're speaking with Alan Paul, who is the author, along with Andy Eldort of Texas Flood, The Inside Story of Stevie Ray Vaughan. One of the cool things about your book is is it's a, you know, start to finish bio of Stevie Ray Vaughan. But, you know, inside that huge story, there's lots of really interesting little stories. And one of the ones that caught my attention, for the folks out there who don't know the damage that guitarists' hands take, especially <laughs> people who are touring all the time, do you want to recount Stevie Ray's callus kit, as it's called, and his, his routine on his hands? You're absolutely right in what you said. Us guitarists really suffer for our fingers. Our fingers really <laughs> suffer for our art, I guess I should say. Um, but Stevie was an extreme case. Stevie played with very, very heavy guitar strings um, because you get a really nice, thick, full sound. But Stevie used them and bent extreme bends. Uh, it was a cornerstone of his style as it is in in most blues <laughs> guitar playing so it, it's almost unheard of to play with that thickness of string in that style and so his fingers were just constantly shredded but stevie would end his nights with chunks of his fingers gone so he carried around a, he had uh, nail clippers and a files and uh, he would make a paste with crazy glue and baking powder. And the third missing ingredient of that was uh, human sweat. So <laughs> uh, Chris and Tommy, you know, learned to push him away after shows because he'd come up <laughs> and wipe their fing his fingers across, the his bloody fingers across their face uh, to get that last missing ingredient. But he would then create a paste with that 
um, put it on his fingers and basically glue chunks of missing chunks of his fingers down. And then the file was to, you know, file it down and smooth it off. And he did that uh, pretty much every night after every show. Got to suffer for your art, I guess. <laughs> yeah, and and after he had cleaned up in later years, he did he did back off a little bit on the size of the strings. And and Doyle Bramhall told us that, you know, he saw Stevie after that, and he said, "Stevie, you're not using the 13s anymore." And he said, "No, I now that I'm not using cocaine, I can feel my fingers." Oh, <laughs> so, I, so I had to I had to battle that back a little bit. Yeah, well, he he was also kind of a violent guitar player, and especially on some of the rhythm pieces. You know, I, I remember. Yeah, the way he played, it was very, you know, violent. The only word I can think of. What what really is so gripping and draws people in about Stevie is that total commitment, Mm -hmm. that fact that he's one with his guitar, and it is violent sometimes. And I think the more you know about him, and as people read the book, they'll have that sense. He was wrestling with his own demons, and he plays guitar like he's wrestling with a demon. I mean, it's he doesn't look happy. You know, and if you watch his later performances after he had gotten clean in 1987 and you watch them late in his life in 1989 and 90, you see the same total commitment and the same purity. But I but I don't think you see someone who looks as tortured. Well, things start to pick up for them and Alligator Records, which was the preeminent U.S. blues label. Um, you know, they got a lot of references and, they, you know, it seems like a match made in heaven, but they just didn't connect, which, you know, in my opinion, was probably a good thing because Stevie was a lot bigger than that and probably needed a major label. Do you agree? Disagree? Yes, I agree. Um, it, you know, it's it's a very open discussion if even if Alligator had been interested. Uh, Chesley Milliken was very adamant at that point that Stevie should only sign with a major label. And to say that now, you you know, someone might say, well, of course they would. But to put it in perspective, that was a pretty big deal. I mean, Alligator was, you know, they weren't as big as they would become, but they were the prominent blues label. And there was no thought that major labels were interested in blues. You know, you mentioned I wrote One Way Out, so to to put it in Allman Brothers' perspective, I mean, the Allman Brothers broke up in 1982 after recording three increasingly unsuccessful both commercially and creatively albums for Arista because they felt forced to alter what they were doing. They lost the things that made them the Almond Brothers, that made them special. So that's the same era in which Stevie is trying to get a major label deal. Right. Uh, nobody really doubted his talent, but you know, even Chris said, I never doubted if what we were doing was good, but I doubted all the time if what we were doing was going to be successful. Right. You have to credit Chesley with having that vision of realizing that Stevie could, should, and eventually would be on a major label and that a little blues label wasn't the place for him. Well, interestingly enough, right around that time, I think it was 82, they also did a private party for Rolling Stone Records at Danceteria in New York City. What was that about? Was that an audition? <laughs> Yes, it wasn't explicitly an audition, but it was de facto an audition. So as you said, it was in that same era. Suddenly things started to happen. I mean, after they had been kicking around clubs in Austin and throughout Texas without much happening, they did have a growing fan base there. So they could sort of have a decent day-to-day living playing clubs. But things started to move. And the Rolling Stone thing specifically came about because 
Charlie Watts and his wife came down to us <laughs> to Maynard Downs to buy a, a racehorse, oh. <laughs> actually. And as as mentioned, Chesley was friends with them. He gave them a VHS tape of uh, Stevie and Double Trouble. He watched it, loved it, gave it to Mick Jagger, who loved it. Mick was really hot to sign them to Rolling Stone Records, which was a new thing. And they had them come to New York and play at Danceteria, which on the one hand was a big success. Andy Warhol was there. Uh, Mick and Ronnie Wood were there. It went great. Charlie Comer, who was a classic publicist who was working already for Stevie, you know, managed to get a picture with Mick and uh, Stevie that then got put into Rolling Stone, random notes. And that was really a big deal at that time. So it did succeed in, in again, raising his profile right, a little right. bit outside the circle, but they never really heard back from Rolling Stone Records. And I think in your book you mentioned that Wood loved the show and was transfixed, right. but Mick, after the show, had kind of a just a blasé reaction or something. No, that, that's not exactly true. Mick, Mick, after the show, was very enthusiastic to them. He took pictures with them. He told them how much he loved them and that somebody would be in touch. Um, and then ultimately, no one was in touch. And eventually, the word they got was that uh, Mick and Ronnie went to the D guy, whoever D guy was, about this. And, and he said, what are you, crazy? We're not signing a blues act. <laughs> so, But it was the start of this process where, where they were starting to get known. Mick Jagger likes us. Right, Ron right. Wood likes us. You know, New York likes us. There's, there's got to be something happening here. We're not crazy. It's not just us who think we're good. On the other hand, and in an alternate universe, several weeks later, they opened for The Clash in Austin, Texas, and Tommy called that show a nightmare, and the band actually declined to play the next night. That's right. <laughs> it was a two. And it's an interesting, there's a couple of interesting things about that. So uh, it was a fiasco. They came out on stage for The Clash, and they were getting booed, and they were having stuff thrown at them. And, you know, opening bands, it's, it's always tough to be an opening band, but at the time, for them, remember, it was their hometown. Right, right. It was their town where they were pretty popular, but it wasn't their fans. It wasn't the people who were coming to see them in clubs. Right. It was a completely different crowd, and it shook them up. And they said Joe Strummer was extremely nice to them. <laughs> he apologized. You know, he was he was a bit embarrassed. Stevie said, uh, you know, well, we understand, you know. You're, you're cool, but we just can't do this tomorrow. And, and he said, yeah, no problem. I get it. So, yeah, um, but yeah that, was, that was a blip uh, of, of unsuccess at a moment when things were really building towards success. And shortly, there'd be more on the other end of that uh, music, you know, universe. And they play the Montreux Jazz Festival, which was a pivotal gig in many ways and would not least of all lead to a, a connection to David Bowie. Right. And and that also came about just from them being so impressive live because Jerry Wexler was in Austin, um, ironically, for a record release party for Luann Barton, which, by the way, is not a good album. <laughs> and it's an example, as I mentioned, of, of how roots artists could really be mishandled in that era. Um, it's overproduced. It doesn't sound good. Jerry saw Stevie and Double Trouble play the night before the record release party at the Continental Club, and he just flipped out. And he called Claude Nobbs, who was the founder and director of the Montreux Jazz Festival, and he said, you need to book this band I just saw in Texas. I don't have a tape. I don't have a video. I don't have anything. Just don't worry about it. Trust me. Book them. And uh, he did. You know, that was the power of, of Jerry Wexler. So they mm -hmm. went over there. 
and Chris was funny. He said, you know, I thought it was kind of crazy because we weren't getting paid to play Montreux. So Chris's attitude was, well, why should we give up a $1,500 gig in San Antonio to fly to Switzerland and play for right. free? That's why you don't have your drummer making all your decisions. <laughs> you need a manager. Because what happened was they, they went out. It was not a particularly successful gig. They got placed on an acoustic blues night, and they came out with their full-on performance. But it was tepid, and there's a handful of booze, and they walked off hmm. feeling really distraught. You know, we came so far for this. And Stevie said to Tommy and Chris as they were walking off, I didn't think we were that bad, did you? And they're back in the dressing room, and someone from uh, the festival came to them and said, um, David Bowie's here. I would like to meet you. And they all looked at each other. Okay, <laughs> bring him back. So David Bowie came back, and he was raving about how wonderful it was, which, among other things, is a good reminder for every musician out there that no matter how you feel a gig is going or if there's five people there, you know, never let up. Right. Um, because, you know, might not have gotten through to everyone, but David Bowie clearly saw what was happening and who Stevie was and uh, told him that he was the greatest electric bluesman he had seen in memory and he'd like him to play on his next album and they said great and exchanged contact information and stuff and that was that and I don't think anyone really thought David Bowie's going to call us mm -hmm. <laughs> but they were they were it was still you know regardless of what came next that in itself I think was an incredibly satisfying thing and then that night they played um in the small bar in the basement of the hotel where all the musicians stayed and Bob Glaub who was the bass player for Jackson Brown happened to walk in and see it, and he described it as walking into a small room with a 747 revving, <laughs> and he was blown away, and he ran out to the house phone, and he called everyone in the Jackson Brown band and crew and said, don't ask any questions, come to the basement bar now. And everybody from the organization, the band, the crew, everyone came down, except Rick Vito, the guitar player, who, who regrets it to this day. They all came, and they played until seven in the morning, and there's some great photos of Jackson playing Stevie's number one guitar. Right. Those are in the book, right? There's yeah, they are in the book. book. And they had a great time. And at the end of the night, Jackson said to Stevie, I have a, a studio in Los Angeles and you're welcome to use it for free anytime you want to get something done on tape. So after that, they went back to Austin. There really was nothing happening. And Chris said, maybe we ought to call Jackson and see if we can uh, do something. So they did. He offered them uh, three days of free studio over Thanksgiving weekend because no one else was going to be using it. And they went up there and they cut what they thought were going to be a demo that turned out to be Texas Flood. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, and while they were there, Stevie got a phone call at 3 in the morning from David Bowie asking him if he would come play on Let's Dance which he did uh, in January, about six weeks later. So so on the one hand, they're driving out and playing gigs to pay for gas to record free in California. And on right. the other hand, uh, Stevie's being called to New York, right? To, right. Is it the power station to play on Let's Dance? That's right. So it all goes back to what seemed like a bum gig in Switzerland. That's right. After a long time and a lot of slow development, things happened very, very fast. And, and the producer, Nile Rogers, he loved Stevie Ray. He put the band together. But Stevie Ray didn't read music, and that might have hurt him a bit. 
Well, it didn't hurt him initially with the recording session. It was a complete non-issue. Um, he came in, he listened to the music, uh, and he played everything in one or two takes. David Bowie also asked him to be in his touring band for what was going to be a, a very long uh, world tour for Let's Dance. So Carlos Alomar, who was the band leader, had to start making charts for Stevie, and he realized that not only did Stevie not read music, but he didn't know really any music theory or um, at least the best way I could describe it is how to read a more complex chart than sort of CG uh, D. Right. So it became a bit of an issue for other material. He, of course, on a world tour of David Bowie, they're not going to just play uh, Let's Dance. Right, right. Then in the end, there was no issue at all because on the, on the day of the tour, he quit. Right, right. Um, there was some thought that Bowie had offered the opening slot to the band, and then it wasn't there. And that's when Stevie quit. Is that right? Stevie believed that Double Trouble was going to be opening shows. I believe that what happened was Stevie said to Bowie, well, I'd like to be in your band, but you know, I have my own band. I'm not sure what to do with that. And he said, oh, you can open some shows they can, on the tour. But as the tour started to get closer... Uh, some of the people in Stevie's orbit began to realize, well, nobody's contacted us about opening shows, <laughs> you know, and it sounds like a great idea, but there's a lot of logistics that get involved. As anyone who's ever been around a, a big tour knows, well, the, the question starts to be all these simple logistical things. Well, how is Chris Layton and Tommy Shannon getting there? You know, <laughs> where are they going? Are they, they're not getting on that bus. They're not getting on that plane. So the, the sort of practical nature of any of this stuff was never dealt with to such a large extent that it seems obvious to me that it never was really a serious offer. But things also changed because by the time they were actually rehearsing for the tour, Stevie had been signed to Epic and Texas Flood was going to come out. Right. So that puts him in a very different position. Instead of just a guy who's trying to establish himself and build his name, he's now a guy who's trying to build his name in support of his first record, which is something he's dreamed of all his life. Right. And so the equation of what to do becomes a little different and a little bit complicated. And it's not like quitting the, the Bowie tour didn't get him a lot of press because that was everywhere. Stevie had a great publicist named Charles Comer, who had been around forever. He was an Irish guy who had worked with the Beatles and the Stones. And I was lucky enough to get to deal with him a bit in my early days at Guitar World. And he would talk about my Beatles and my Stones <laughs> and my Stevie Ray. Well, this was a very rich vein for Charles Comer to work with. And so... What they really did was spin Stevie into a bit of a folk hero as, you know, hotshot unknown Texas guitarist tells Limey Rockstar to shove it. Right. And the actual story is a little more complex than that. But at the same time, it, it's not untrue. I mean, that is what he did. And it's easy to look at now and say he made the right move because it all worked. Um, at the time a guy who had been struggling to make a name and get himself out there for many years, uh, walked away from what was about to become the biggest rock tour of the year to go out and get back in a little van and play small clubs with his trio. So, albeit with a major label release coming out, but it, right. it took some, you know, cojones for him to do that, I think. No doubt. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. 
Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. We're talking with Alan Paul, who's the author of Texas Flood, the inside story of Stevie Ray Vaughan. So as you mentioned, let's go and look at some of his records. So Texas Flood is his first record, and I believe you say in the book that it is the demos that that come out as the record. Is that right? That is right, yeah. The only overdubs they did were his vocals back in Austin. Everything else, or virtually everything else, was recorded during those sessions at Jackson Brown studio. And... I think that that's one of the things that makes it such a great album. Well, it was the opposite of being too polished. <laughs> it was, if anything, too raw, but it wasn't too raw because it was so perfect for the musical form that it was. It was so pure, and they were playing so free, and they played like they played their live gigs. I mean, they only had three days there in Jackson's studio, and so they did the most logical thing in the world, which was to play songs in their set list. And that has some great songs on it. Besides the title track, Texas Flood, it has Pride and Joy, Mary Had a Little Lamb, Lenny, which is about his wife. All amazing. Do you have a favorite on that album? Well, I mean, the whole album is, is a favorite. But <laughs> but if I had to pick, uh, I would say Lenny. That side of his playing, represented by Lenny, uh, Riviera Paradise. Oh, amazing. Right. His, yeah, his version of Little Wing. I think it's actually some of Stevie's most original playing. The way he puts it together is completely unique and I think totally his own. It, it's Stevie Ray Vaughan essence and it's it's just pure heart and soul. It's it's, it's just that sort of molten soul. I mean, I, I could listen to that anytime, <laughs> day yeah. or night. Yeah, and you know, obviously his blues playing is what he's known for, but those ballads are just unbelievable and you know, on his second album, Couldn't Stand the Weather, and that, that might be my favorite. Some of those songs, like Cold Shot, we mentioned before, Tin Pan Alley, they just kill, you know? Right, and there's great stories about all the songs in the in the book. You know, Tin Pan Alley was a good example. So John Hammond, the legendary uh, producer and record man who had signed Stevie to Epic, and he said to them, all right, guys, play something to get a good sound going. And they played Tin Pan Alley. And according to, to Chris, he just started playing it. And they finished, and, and John said, 
all right, boys, we can move on. We're not going to get it any better than that. And they all looked at each other and said, wait, you recorded that? No. I mean, they literally thought they were just relaxing. Rehearsing. And that's that's the version of Tin Pan Alley you, you hear. He, they thought they were rehearsing and just getting uh, their feet wet and getting the sounds for the day. It's funny because it is a bit looser than you would probably ever get if you know you were being recorded. That's right. That's right. And that was clearly part of John Hammond's genius was he was from the era of what you're trying to do is capture a great performance. So, and, and Chris Layton had a great story about cold shot as well, that he was asleep on the couch at 4 a.m. And Stevie woke him up and said, come on, we're going to record. I got this. And they went out and played cold shot and they had never played it. It wasn't really part of their playlist. And so Chris said to us, you know, people ask me all the time, how did you get that layback shuffle feel on cold shot? And then the answer is, I was dead asleep on the couch and just trying to, you know, stick with Stevie and play what he played. Mm. So that was an arrangement that just came together on the spot. Stevie was a really, at this point, a really underrated singer, in my opinion. Uh, I completely agree, and I've come to appreciate that more and more in first doing this book, and then in, as I mentioned, uh, you know, Andy and I are both guitarists and performers, and we've done some tributes to Stevie Ray, and I've sung a bunch of his songs. Just like when you try to learn how to play them on guitar, you realize just how great of a guitar player right, he was. Right. When you try to sing them, you realize just how great of a singer he was. He was a very, very expressive singer. Um, he wasn't going to just sing to get it sung. He put the same care and effort into being a great singer as he had into being a great guitarist. I think his guitar playing is so great that it's often overlooked. Now, I saw this tour in Boston in 1984 for the um, Couldn't Stand the Weather show, and it pops up very early in your book, and it continues almost all the way through it, and I can only vouch for what I heard. He was loud, and that yeah. was easily the loudest show I've ever seen. Right. He was always loud <laughs> from the start, uh, and, uh, and obviously early in his career when he was playing at smaller venues, that loudness was more obvious and apparent. It just was. Um, and, you know, that's guitar players like to be loud. And <laughs> I think it's important for people who, aren't, you know, don't know this to, to understand that it's not just because you want to be loud. It's because when you're playing through tube amps, you have to get to a certain volume where the tubes just are starting to break up a little bit to right, get right. the sound that, yeah, you really want to hear. It wasn't just what he played, but the sound was really important to him. And it could be overwhelming to be in the same room as his guitar, uh, especially in those early days. You mentioned they were obsessive about that. It seems right about this stage, uh, they're also obsessive about drinking and cocaine. And it starts to reach a, a really different level here, kind of entering the danger zone. And in your book, you know, there are people like Buddy Guy and Albert King and Eric Clapton. They all notice this and they try to talk to yeah. them to, to ease up. That's right. That's all true. <laughs> you know, I think the easiest way to explain that is it, it it's not a surprise to, to, you know, you know, I think at this point we all know a lot more about addiction than we did, you know, than, than anyone did then. Even when someone you respect as much as Stevie respected Eric Clapton and Albert King and Buddy Guy, tells you to back off doesn't mean that much because the, the addiction is too strong and too intense. Um, and Stevie was 
you know, as he later wrote in the song, caught up in the whirlwind. Yeah. People ask us all the time, you know, when did Stevie decide he had to change? And the fact is he never really decided he had to change. He almost died. Right. And then that's when he decided he had to change. And to his great credit, I, I believe, once he did reach that point and once he did make that realization, he really changed. I mean, he really changed completely, not just in stopping the abuse, which is, uh, of course, very difficult in its own right, is, but he changed his entire approach to life. He had changed his entire approach to how he viewed himself, how he interacted with others. And he had always been sort of a warm, caring, big-hearted person, um, except for a very brief period where the addictions, you know, really took that even that away from him. But he began to live that way. It was very moving. I mean, that, that part of his life, it was very inspiring to me. I mean, it, it very much remains so. It definitely is. I mean, to get there, soul to soul, you know, they bring back Doyle Bramhole, who's just sober. And then they move on to Live Alive, uh, which had some of the mantra things. But, you know, Tommy Shannon called that a good example of drugs not working anymore. So the Montrose stuff from 85 actually is really strong. But I think what's telling is that was a year before they were trying to record Live Alive. And they ended up leaning on it way more than they had planned on or anticipated because so many of these other shows were, frankly, bad. And as Tommy said, you know, the drugs weren't working. They had closed down to whatever extent they you know, their drugs and lifestyle opened them up to each other and to the greater muse. That was gone, and they were just closed off from each other, and they were all in their own drug-induced world. He remained highly functional <laughs> musically, um, and that's also a period where he started to sort of not be nice to people. And those were two things that the people closest to him, of course, noticed and got concerned about. He's no longer you know, holding it. He's changing who he is. He's losing himself as a musician. Uh, and it was very concerning to people. And um, because of that, a lot of the stuff on Live Alive, I think, is frankly hard to listen to. You mentioned that earlier, and your book really, really puts into context just how seriously he took his recovery. And he really, really did turn it around. He had a new love in his life. He's reconnecting with his family. He's planning this album with Jimmy, which is something he always wanted to do. But he was very, very serious about his sobriety. Obviously, nobody knew he would do that. Nobody could know what anybody's going to do. But nobody expected him to do that. People were surprised, the people closest to him. I mean, even Jimmy said, well, I figured he would do his 30 days you know, to get everyone off his back and straighten out and, and then, you know, get back to the way he lived. When the problems are that intense, that's not an unusual pattern. And so more of what I'm trying to say is Stevie's uh, full-on embrace of it from the beginning, I think, is, is unusual and, and merits, um, you know, attention and praise. Well, this this part of the book was one of my favorites. It was just really wonderful and joyous to read. And I could hear that in your voice as you're telling stories that, you know, just as a person, he came out, you know, a better person. And then he releases In Step, which was, I believe, his first sober record. Is that right. right? That, that is correct. And ultimately his only sober record, oh. sadly. And it features just three monster songs with Tightrope and Crossfire and Wall of Denial, which speaks sort of to his his drug addiction right 
couple of things there. So I, I agree with everything you said. And I think it's interesting and worth noting that he did turn his struggles and his conquering of these problems into great art. Not that many people do that. You know, he was hesitant at first to write about that. I mean, who wants to hear someone sing about a wall of denial? I mean, but uh, he did it and he pulled it off and the songs are wonderful. Um, They they make their point that that if you're listening, you can't miss hearing, Um, but they're not preachy and they're not telling you what to do. They're a, a... you know, a guidepost. And it, it is very inspiring. And early in the process of writing the book, I was at a family event and I was talking to uh, a, a relative who's in his early 30s. He asked me what I was up to. And I told him I was working on this book about Stevie Ray. And he got very excited. Mm. And uh, I was frankly surprised. I didn't think he would really be into the music. And I said that to him. And, uh, you know, he said, well, I like Stevie Ray's music. And he said, you know, Stevie's an icon of sobriety and we study him. And I was really moved by that. And I I talked to him quite a bit more about that. And when I went home, I called Andy (laughs) immediately and I said, you know, I know we cover sobriety pretty thoroughly, but I don't think it's thorough enough. I don't think we're really appreciating what a big part of his life this was and continues to be in his his legacy as as strong as the musical legacy is is also that well it's a very potent part of the book and it, it paints an even more fuller picture i think of stevie ray so i mean congratulations on that because it it does work thank you thank you very much well as i said at the beginning i don't think that you could really understand stevie without understanding his family to the exact same degree and in the same way you can't understand him without really grasping just how bad his problem was and how thoroughly he overcame it right and you know there's there's some rough patches there and we have this beautiful kind of redemption and you know like i said i loved reading that but i knew what was coming you know alpine valley is out there looming yeah i had to put the book down for a bit and just kind of you know come back to that was that as hard to write as it was to read Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> Short answer, yes, it was. And what was particularly hard, when the book was completed and we were proofing it, I found every time I, I had to put it down um, and step away and come back for the last few chapters. I couldn't read it um, without getting super, super emotional. And I couldn't effectively copy edit or proofread it while I was. It was hard also not just to deal with the death, but with the aftermath. And when the whole book was done, Andy and I talked and we said, you know, we covered the event of his death really well, but we didn't really get into his, how it impacted people. We got to do that. And we (laughs) made a list of people and we divided it up and we both got on the phone and, and in a day we both spent all day talking to the people closest to him about the impact of CB's death. Because we wanted to paint a picture of what happened in Dallas and in Austin um, in the immediate aftermath. That one day was incredibly effective because we both got amazing stuff. But that day was really emotionally grueling for both of us. Yeah, I I bet. And I I remember that very well. And, you know, the dime version, for those too young to remember, if you don't know, it was you know, after putting his life back together and the end of a triumphant gig at Alpine Valley and bad weather and a helicopter. And, you know, he perished that night. 
it's you can tell it affected a lot of people. Yeah, and you know, the next day, as the word was coming out, because there were sort of vague rumors that Eric Clapton had died, but I remember being extra upset when I heard the news because I felt that that they were reporting it almost like, oh, uh, Eric Clapton's not dead; it's just some guy named Stevie Ray Vaughan. And there was a certain dismissiveness in the mainstream uh, coverage of it that somehow made a horrible situation even more horrible, at, at least in my mind. You know, what happened to Stevie, what happened to Otis Redding and, and Buddy Holly, exactly. Jim Croce. I mean, there's an extra level of hopelessness, I guess, that comes with, with the randomness of those those crashes. Yeah, and I think it's fair to say that Stevie Ray opened up a new generation's eyes and ears to the blues. And uh, Alan Paul, your book is Texas Flood, the inside story of Stevie Ray Vaughan. It is a delight to read. I would encourage people to check it out if you want to know this legacy because it's one of a kind. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the kind words. That's what we wanted to do. We wanted to put Stevie's legacy uh, in perspective and help people to understand that and to know him as a person. Well, you've done good, Alan. It does all of that and more. <laughs> and uh, thanks for stopping by and talking with us. Oh, thank you. Thanks very much for your interest and for your careful reading of the book. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com. And you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our deep dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an all-music books podcast. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points.